it's about the immigrant experience, but it's also about young people who are outsiders, who don't belong anywhere, don't even belong with their families or in their own little town, but they belong with each other. Welcome to Book Society, the podcast where we talk to authors about the books that they love to read and dive deep into the books that they've written. I'm your host, Lucas Cantor Santiago. So nobody's pilgrims, Mali, Turi, Arnolfo, are all running away from something. Their troubles are only compounded by their journey. And is this part of the modern immigrant experience, the idea that you're running from something and the journey becomes its own trouble? You know, I wrote Nobody's Pilgrims in part because, you know, I wanted an adventure novel, a lot like Twain wanted to set his young protagonist off on a journey. And the same thing with Duty, you know, who's Mexican-American. He's more or less the guy in the middle in the book cover. And then Arnulfo Munoz, who's an undocumented immigrant. And Duty's an orphan. You know, he doesn't belong in his family. His family doesn't really want him there. In fact, right before... He jumps in the truck with Arnulfo to take off to Kansas City. His family, his aunt, tell him, we're shipping you back to Mexico. You know, we don't really want you. We can't afford you. And he's abused in his family. So he is running away from the border. And Arnulfo, of course, doesn't want to get caught by La Migra. Right in El Paso, they meet at a chicken farm. And so on the way out, they get this ride with this old guy, Juanito, who is a foreman at the chicken farm. At a checkpoint in Lubbock, they discover that Juanito is giving a bribe to the immigration officer. And so they know they're carrying something illicit in the truck. And they decide to steal the truck, Duri and Arnulfo, ditch Juanito. And then later they meet Molly Crump, who's also an orphan in Steelville, Missouri. Molly saves him from a pickle that they get in the Mark Twain National Forest. Because <laughs> reading is really important in this novel. One of the reasons that Duty and Molly connect. And, and Molly is this working-class white girl that is physically stronger than both Duty and Arnulfo. They connect through reading, through wordplay, through the books that they're carrying in the truck. Duty is carrying a milk crate with, I think, five different books. And one of them is The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And so that's why they decide to hide for one day in the Mark Twain National Forest, which is where they meet Molly. And Molly joins them. So it's about the immigrant experience, but it's also about young people who are outsiders, who don't belong anywhere, don't even belong with their families or in their own little town, but they belong with each other. They start creating a community amongst themselves in which they start saving each other from the dangers that are following them, you know, including the narcos, very badass narcos coming after them from Don Ilan in Acapulco to John Bradas Dunbar and the people they send after the three teenagers in the truck. So I think it, it is about the immigrant experience, but it's also about the American experience of finding your place in the world where people don't want you there. And I wanted it to be very fast-paced because, I mean, I'm an, an old philosophy guy. I was actually going to be a philosophy professor, and I started working on my dissertation on Aristotle at Yale. <laughs> and, you know, that sounds very sort of heady and all of that. Yes, working on your dissertation on Aristotle at Yale does sound heady. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes indeed it does. You know, I mean, it, it <laughs> seems like an albatross usually for, for, for me because I tell people, yes, I had these ideas that, for the novel, but 
None of these things come out because it's all very fast-paced. But just like Aristotle believed, I believe character is determined through action, to determine by what you do in a charged situation. And so the different things that happen to Turi, to Arnulfo, to Molly, reveal their character. They're very different kinds of characters that they have. And for me, it was a very purposely drawn that way to put them in danger, to make them fight for their position, and to sometimes have them fail and succeed, and even sometimes by moral luck, escape their pursuers. And all of this you know, would reveal the complex characters that Turi has and Molly has and even Arnulfo has. So for me, it was this philosophical agenda in the background that I was trying to play through these characters. I wanted to ask you, as a Latino who has spent time in the South and in Connecticut, how is Connecticut racism different? Well, you know, there's a scene in the novel, right? When they get to Denbury McDonald's. I've been to that McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you didn't have the same experience as Tudi and Molly and, and Arnulfo. I think the difference is there are Mexicans in Northwest Connecticut. I mean, certainly in New Haven and Stanford, et cetera, and not just Mexican Centroamericanos, et cetera, Guatemaltecos. But I would say it's more subtle. And sometimes it's not that subtle. There are a lot of Trump people around here. But I think my view has always been that you have to take the border beyond the border. Mexicans and Centroamericanos, et cetera, have to be conquering places like Connecticut, like Yale, like, you know, the places that you're not supposed to be there, where there are very few people there, but they're getting there, by the way. That's the place you have to go to to fight for your place and to show that you belong anywhere. Sometimes the racism that I got when I grew up in El Paso was often from other Chicanos, which is surprising, but it's not that surprising because you make it on this side, then you start trying to separate yourself from the new wave of immigrants coming over. You know, you see this in McAllen, for example, where McAllen men are voting for Trump in droves, you know, Mexican-American men from the Valley. And so I think in Connecticut, you know, I, I look a little prepped out, but this is just a uniform simply because sure. I've been wearing this for all my life since I got up here. And I'm the only Mexican-American in my program at the Yale Writers Workshop. But after a while, they know me. And I've had a lot of readings in Kent bookstores at the, for example, the House of Books. And even the Kent Memorial Library did a program. I've done like two or three programs with them. And one of the programs, friends of mine who own a restaurant brought in tamales. And it was packed. People <laughs> came for the food. They came for the stories. So it opened up people's minds, you know, very sort of white Connecticut, very maybe you could call it New England, Connecticut, to there are stories here and there are people here who have a lot to contribute to this society, to the New England society, but it also opens it up to say that you belong here, your stories belong here, and we've been here for a while, but almost invisible. But you have to, I think, be visible and also say that you're part of this society. Like, you know, you care about storytelling as much as the next person, but your stories are going to be different and you are going to change what it means to be a New Englander. In fact, I have a story, The Peculiar Kind of Immigrant Son. My book is a story that a lot of New England people write to me about. It's called New Englander. 
And it's about this Mexican-American guy, like someone you know, who has a nice house in Kent, and he's made it as a professor. And he's chopping wood one day, and this guy comes up his driveway, his very long driveway, and he's a townie. He looks like Cormac McCarthy, kind of <laughs> white, kind of ruddy. And this guy holds him up with a gun. That's the beginning of the story. He's basically there to rob him. And this Cormac McCarthy lookalike guy is saying, you know, I want what you have. And so the, the real question is, who is the real New Englander here? The townie coming to try to take things by force or the Mexican immigrant who made it, who now looks like a New Englander and for all practical purposes, but he did it through the old fashioned way by working his ass off, by taking care of his family and doing what he could to create this house in Connecticut. And so the struggle, physical as well as moral, is who embodies real New England values? And this is sort of an old question that I think we need to keep asking, especially, you know, as you see more Mexicanos in all sorts of untraditional places. I'd say that if the Cormac McCarthy guy managed to somehow give the professor smallpox, that he would really <laughs> embody the true values of right. New England. I mean, that's the, as you told that story, I just couldn't help think like this is the struggle that happened when the uh, religious zealots from uh, England. Oh, they killed so many Native Americans. With well, a lot of them were sick, but, you know, I mean, yeah, they, they killed them accidentally and then on purpose. I mean, that's the really dark and horrifying history of New England. Right. I guess my experience with New England racism was, I mean, I'm Puerto Rican and depending on how I dress, uh, very white seeming, like, I guess I could be Italian or something. And so I've had people say incredibly racist things to me because they thought I was one of the guys, you know, right. like just like not to me, but like to me about someone else thinking that I was going to commiserate with them. What I noticed was that it seems to me like the doors are very well guarded, but once you're in, you're in. There is sort of a lot of mistrust of outsiders, but once you're in an institution or something, it doesn't really matter that you are whoever you are, as long as you're doing a good job. And I have a very limited experience with Southern racism, but it seems like you can come right in, but you're never going to be a part of it. Right. You can come in, you can look around, you can even do a little bit of work here, but you're never going to be like really a part of it. I don't know if that tracks with your experience, but that's what I've observed. I, I, I would say that's true. I mean, I think certainly at Yale... And in Northwest Connecticut, I mean, you come across people that you know you have very little in common with. And sometimes you argue with them, sometimes you just ignore them. But more often than not, I think the longer you stay here and defend your place, the more they just sort of get used to you. You know, yeah. you're part of it, but I don't want to lose who I am. I think that's probably the biggest issue for somebody like, and nobody's pilgrims, and, and certainly personally for me, is. The further away I got from the border, the more of the question became, don't lose who you are. Don't lose where you came from. Be proud of where you're from, but also don't be afraid to challenge what's going on on the border. Because sometimes the stuff going on on the border is sometimes worse than what's going on in Connecticut. In terms of it's horrifying for me to find out that Mexican men in the Rio Grande Valley are now voting in a majority way for the Republican and all of the you know issues that you have in Mexico. I think one of the things that being away from the border, one of the things that it allows you to do is to have a perspective and to be critical 
of things that happen right around in your community that you shouldn't accept. And I think that's the duty of any free thinker, not just to criticize the racism you might get by some white guy in Connecticut, but even the retrograde attitudes that you might see within your own community along the border. I think a free thinker has to call it the way he or she sees it. What is Nepantla and what does it mean to you? Okay, so I was editor of this anthology that came out in uh, a year ago called Nepantla Familias, an anthology of Mexican-American literature on families in between worlds. And Nepantla is an Aztec word that means living in between, on the liminal space between Spanish and English, between Mexico and the United States, between old traditional values, let's say, of your parents and the new values you're adopting, let's say, as an American or as a newer citizen. And so it really means this middle ground of trying to navigate your identity, trying to decide who you are, trying to create this hybrid self that is very common along the border. You see it all throughout Texas, but also California and you know New Mexico and all sorts of other places in which people are picking and choosing their identity that is not Orthodox Mexican, that is not Orthodox American. In fact, that resists that kind of choosing of sides. Are you on this side or are you on that side? And they're creating something new in this middle ground of Nepantla. And I think this is one of the reasons why this anthology, Nepantla Familias, has had, I think we're already in our third or fourth printing. It's all new work by Mexican-American writers 30 works, 25 have appeared in this anthology for the first time ever. And people like Sandra Cisneros, Reina Grande, Alex Espinosa, Rigoberto Gonzalez, basically the heavy hitters of the Mexican-American world, all writing about this issue of living in between and how they either navigated it or how they suffered trying to find out who they were, or also humorous. You know, some of the funny things that happen when people try to force you to be either on one side or the other, and you're trying to create this middle ground that deserves its own respect and deserves its own integrity. And I think Mexican-Americans live this Nepantla existence every day. I mean, you know, giving a talk at Yale and then going back and having to deal with my mother's adobe house in El Paso which is in rural Texas, and then going to New York City the, the next day. You know, you're traveling rural, urban, you know, the edge of the world on the border to New York City all in one day and one week. And you get used to kind of this jumping back and forth between languages, between existences, and even values, you know, all in your mind. And you create a different kind of identity, an identity that resists this sort of monosyllabic or mono-identity, but it creates a hybrid identity, a fluid identity, an identity like water, that you can flow back and forth between different points of views and different cultural values and even different languages. And that becomes your identity. That's what Nepantla means. That's really interesting. I just got back from Miami, and in Miami, I'm like very much Puerto Rican. Like that is probably the most important thing about me when I'm in Miami is that I'm Puerto Rican. I, you know, I'm a musician. I know, you uh-huh. know about Cuban music and in Los Angeles, 
nobody could give a shit. I mean, it's not something that I encounter on a daily basis. My ethnicity is not important. It's not something right. anybody really asks about. And I feel what you said. I am the same way. I'm I'm a Puerto Rican that uh, uh, until, I mean, I went by Lucas Cantor for most of my career because that's my Latinized name and nobody even knew. Now I use my full name just because I think it's important to people to know. And I, th I guess it's also important, like I'm, there aren't a lot of Puerto Rican composers. There are some great ones like Lin-Manuel Miranda and Bad Bunny, but there aren't a lot of us. And so I right. think it's important to know that like, you know, someone is doing film music and is Puerto Rican and is doing it at a high level. You know, using my full name is a way to let people know that, then I'm going to do that. Well, and, and all of these different cells are in you. Whether yeah. you want to admit it or not, I certainly feel that way. But I wonder if that's a more universal experience. I mean, because everybody is, you know, different th things in different situations, father, son, husband. Right. And my wife is from the Midwest. Her family are, you know, all white Midwesterners. Right. But they all have very complex and intricate relationships like anybody. And they're one person when they're talking to grandma and they mm -hmm. have to have a different role when they're talking to their siblings. You know, there aren't multiple languages involved in their case. But uh, I think that's a more universal experience than maybe we think sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Well, and, and you should read the introduction to my Nepantla Familia. <laughs> did, did I just summarize the introduction? <laughs> that is literally the third major reason I think everyone should read this book, not just if you're Mexican-American. Because Nepantla is a universal experience. If you cross any border, if you're white and you married an African-American, if you're you know, Mexican, just like I am, and you married a Jewish woman from Chicago and conquered Massachusetts, you've crossed another border. You've created <laughs> a, a hybrid identity. You know, you're na navigating multiple identities at the same time. You know, just like I, when I'm teaching at Yale, yeah, I'm now sort of somewhat of an insider, but I don't forget growing up with an outhouse in the backyard and kerosene lamps and stoves and, and this poverty I had as a child. So I think Nepantla is a universal experience, but I think Mexican-Americans sort of understand it in a very deep way because you live it every day. But I think if you're white and you went from rural Missouri and you decided to end up in Kansas, and then you married somebody who's very different from your family, you cross your own border. You're trying to create a hybrid identity. You are in Nepantla, in this middle ground. Oh, I got to ask you the question I ask everyone to end the podcast, which is to recommend two books to our audience. Recent books that I've read that I really liked. First, I'm going to point out to Jose Antonio Rodriguez, House of Ashes, which is a beautifully written book about his life growing up very poor along the border. And, and Jose Antonio Rodriguez is now getting regularly published in The New Yorker. He's a phenomenal poet and a beautiful craftsman. I really love his work. Something else that I read recently that I really liked, because I, I wanted to read about Virginia Woolf with Michael Cunningham, The Hours, which won the Pulitzer Prize. And another one that I, I love anything, basically George Saunders writes, but I like Lincoln and the Bardo for its creativity and inventiveness. I think that's really beautifully done work on what a novel could be, a different form of a novel. You know, there's a, a guy that I, I know and who's a friend of mine who had written some beautiful books, Rigoberto Gonzalez, and among the books that I like of his are, he had a book called Retablos, which is a beautifully written memoir of his life. In fact, what I would recommend to people is go to Nepantla Familia, 
because many of these people, Reina Grande, Jose Antonio Rodriguez, Rigoberto Gonzalez, they're all in that anthology. It's a great way to get introduced to the best Mexican-American writing happening right now. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Lucas. I love being on your program. Thank you for listening to Book Society. Our show is produced by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago. This episode was edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. The episode you just heard was brought to you by the Miami Book Fair. The Miami Book Fair 2022 has passed, but the Miami Book Fair 2023 is coming up in November of 2023. Javier Zamora, Ben Matlin, Jesse Hempel, David Hoffman, Robert Sutton, Mike Imperioli, Jake Ward. These are just a few of the hundreds of authors from around the world gathering together in downtown Miami. From Sunday, November 13th to Sunday, November 20th, please visit Miami Book Fair for more information. Follow at Miami Book Fair or hashtag Miami Book Fair 2022. There's sort of a dovetail version of Nepantla happening in Mexico City. Do you know that there are over a million Americans who have moved lock, stock, and barrel to Mexico? I mean, we're not sending our best down there. <laughs> <laughs>